A Bite of Stars, A Slug of Time and Thou. One by one, the pale stars in the sky overhead had twinkled fainter and gone out. One by one, those flaming lights had dimmed and darkened. One by one, they had vanished forever, and in their places had come patches of ink that blotted out immense areas of a sky once luminous with stars. Years had passed, centuries had fled backward, the accumulating thousands had turned into millions, and they too had faded into the oblivion of eternity. The earth had disappeared, the sun had cooled and hardened, and had dissolved into the dust of its grave. The solar system and innumerable other systems had broken up and vanished and their fragments had swelled the clouds of dust which were engulfing the entire universe. In the billions of years which had passed, sweeping everything on toward the gathering doom, the huge bodies, once countless, that had dotted the sky and hurtled through unmeasurable immensities of space, had lessened in number and disintegrated until the black pall of the sky was broken only at rare intervals by dim spots of light, light ever growing paler and darker. No one knew when the dust had begun to gather, but far back in the forgotten dawn of time, the dead worlds had vanished, unremembered and unmourned. Those were the nuclei of the dust, those were the progenitors of the universal dissolution which now approached its completion. Those were the stars which had first burned out, died, and wasted away in myriads of atoms. Those were the mushroom growths which had first passed into nothingness in a puff of dust. The dust had spread and spread. The dim luminosity of the heavens had become fainter as great blots of black appeared far in the outer depths of space. In all the millions and billions and trillions of years that had fled into the past, the cosmic dust had been gathering, and the starry horde had been dwindling. There was a time when the universe consisted of hundreds of millions of stars, planets, and suns, but they were ephemeral as life or dreams, and they faded and vanished one by one. It washed, hateful and brooding about the monarchs and plucked at their lands and deserts. Thicker, thicker, always thicker grew the cosmic dust until the giants no longer could watch each other's gyres far across the void. Instead, they thundered through the waste, lonely, despairing and lost. In solitary grandeur, they burned their brilliant beauty in solitary defeat and death, they disappeared. Of all the stars and all the countless hosts that once had spotted the heavens, there remained only Antares. Antares, immensest of the stars, alone was left. 
the last body in the universe, inhabited by the last race ever to have consciousness, ever to live. That race, in hopeless compassion, had watched the darkening skies and had counted with miserly care the stars which resisted. Everyone that twinkled out wrenched their hearts. Everyone that ceased to struggle and was swallowed by the tides of dust added a new strain to the national anthem. That indescribable melody, that infinitely somber pain of doom which told a solemn harmony in every heart of the dying race. The dwellers had built a great crystal dome around their world in order to keep out the dust and to keep in the atmosphere, and under this dome the watchers kept their silent sentinel. The shadows had swept in faster and faster from the farther realms of darkness, engulfing more rapidly the last of the stars. The astronomer's task had become easier, but the saddest on Antares, that of watching death and oblivion spread a pall of blackness over all that was, all that would be. The last star, Mira, second only to Antares, had shone frostily pale, twinkled more darkly, and vanished. There was nothing in all space except an illimitable expanse of dust that stretched on and on in every direction. Only this and Antares. No longer did the astronomers watch the heavens to glimpse again that dying star before it succumbed. No longer did they scan the upper reaches. Everywhere swirled the dust, enshrouding space with a choking blackness. Once there had been sown throughout the abyss a multitude of morbidly beautiful stars, whitely shining, wan. Now there was none. Once there had been light in the sky, now there was none. Once there had been a dim phosphorescence in the vault, now it was a heavy-hanging pall of ebony, a rayless realm of gloom, a smothering thing of blackness, eternal and infinite. We meet again in this hall of the mist, not in the hope that a remedy has been found, but that we find how best it is fitting that we die. We meet not in the vain hope that we may control the dust, but in the hope that we may triumph even as we are obliterated. We cannot win the struggle, save in meeting our death heroically. The speaker paused. All around him towered a hall of space, rampant. Far above spread a vague roof whose flowing sides melted into the lost and dreamy distances, a roof supported by unseen walls and by the mighty pillars which rolled upward long intervals from the smoothly marbled floor. A faint haze seemed always to be hanging in the air because of the measureless lengths of that architectural colossus. Dim in the distance, the speaker reclined on a metal daze raised above the sea of beings in front of him. But he was not in reality a speaker, nor was he a being such as those which had inhabited the world called Earth. Evolution, because of the unusual conditions on Antares, 
had proceeded along lines utterly different from those followed on the various bodies which had dotted the heavens when the deep was sprinkled with stars in the years now gone. Antares was the hugest sun that had leaped from the primeval chaos. When it cooled, it cooled far more slowly than the others, and when life once began it was assured of an existence not of thousands, not of millions, but of billions of years. That life, when it began, had passed from the simple forms to the age of land juggernauts, and so by steps on and on up the scale. The civilizations of other worlds had reached their apex, and the worlds themselves become cold and lifeless at the time when the mighty civilization of Antares was beginning. The star had then passed through a period of warfare, until such terrific and fearful scourges of destruction were produced that in the two days' war, seven billion of the eight and one-half billion inhabitants were slaughtered. Those two days of carnage ended war for eons. From then on, the Golden Age began. The minds of the people of Antares became bigger and bigger, their bodies proportionately smaller, until the cycle eventually was completed. Every being in front of the speaker was a monstrous heap of black viscidity, each mass an enormous brain, a sexless thing that lived for thought. Long ago it had been discovered that life could be created artificially in tissue formed in the laboratories of the chemists. Sex was thus destroyed, and the inhabitants no longer spent their time in taking care of families. Nearly all the countless hours that were saved were put into scientific advance, with the result that the star leaped forward in an age of progress never paralleled. The beings, rapidly becoming brains, found that by the extermination of the parasites and bacteria on Dantares, by changing their own organic structure, and by willing to live, they approached immortality. They discovered the secrets of time and space. They knew the extent of the universe and how space in its farthest reaches became self-annihilating. They knew that life was self-created and controlled its own period of duration. They knew that when a life tired of existence killed itself, it was dead forever. It could not live again, for death was the final chemical change of life. These were the shapes that spread in the vast sea before the speaker. They were shapes because they could assume any form they wished. Their all-powerful minds had complete control of that which was themselves. When the brains were desirous of traveling, they relaxed from their usual semi-rigidity and flowed from place to place like a stream of ink rushing down a hill. When they were tired, they flattened into discs. When expounding their thoughts, they became towering pillars of rigid ooze. And when lost in abstraction, or in a pleasurable contemplation of the unbounded world created in their minds, within which they often wandered, they resembled huge dormant balls. From the speaker himself had come no sound, Although he had imparted his thoughts to his sentient assembly, the thoughts of the brains when their minds permitted emanated to those about them instantly 
like electric waves. Antares was a world of unbroken silence. The great brain's thoughts continued to flow out. Our most intelligent brains have been thinking on this one subject for untold millions of years. They have excluded from their thoughts everything except the question, how can the dust be checked? They have produced innumerable plans, which have been tested thoroughly. All have failed. We have hurled into the void uncontrollable bolts of lightning, interplanetary sheets of flame, in the hope that we might fuse masses of the dust into new incandescent worlds. We have anchored huge magnets throughout space, hoping to attract the dust, which is faintly magnetic, and thus to solidify it or clear much of it from the waste. We have caused fearful disturbances by exploding our most powerful compounds in the realms about us, hoping to set the dust so violently in motion that the chaos would become tempestuous with the storms of creation. With our rays of annihilation, we have blasted billion-mile paths through the ceaselessly surging dust. We have liberated enormous quantities of gas, lit them, and sent the hot and furious fires madly flashing through the affrighted dust. In our desperation, we have even asked for the aid of the ether eaters Yes, we have in finality exercised our willpower to sweep back the rolling billows. In vain. What has been accomplished? The dust has retreated for a moment, has paused, and has welled onward. It has returned silently triumphant, and it has again hung its pall of blackness over a fear-haunted, nightmare-ridden space. Our chemists, with a bitter doggedness never before displayed, have devoted their time to the production of super-brains in the hope of making one which could defeat the cosmic dust. They have changed the chemicals used in our genesis. They have experimented with molds and forms. They have tried every resource. With what result? There have come forth raging monstrosities, mad abominations, satanic horrors, and ravenous foul things, howling wildly the nameless and indescribable phantoms that thronged their minds. We have killed them in order to save ourselves, and the dust has pushed onward. We have appealed to every living brain to help us. We appealed in the forgotten, dream-veiled centuries for aid in any form. From time to time we have been offered plans, which for a while have made terrific inroads on the dust, but plans which have always failed. The triumph of the cosmic dust has almost come. There is so little time left us that our efforts must now inevitably be futile. But today, in the hope that some brain, either of the old ones or of the gigantic new ones, has discovered a possibility not yet tried, we have called this conference the first in more than 12,000 years. Swelling in soundless sorrow through the hall of the mist rose the racing thoughts of the great brain. The tense, alert silence of the hall relaxed and became soft when the thoughts of the great brain had stopped flowing. 
the electric waves which had filled the vast hall of the mist sank, and for a long time a strange tranquility brooded there. But the mass was never still. The sea in front of the days rippled and billowed from time to time as waves of thought passed through it. Yet no brain offered to speak, and the seething expanse, as the minutes crept by, again became quiet. In a thin column on the days, rising high into the air, swayed the great brain. Again and again it swept its glance around the hall, peering among the rolling, heaving shapes in the hope of finding somewhere in those thousands one which could offer a suggestion. But the minutes passed, and time lengthened with no response. And the sadness of the fixed and changeless end crept across the last race, and the brains, wrapped in their meditation, saw the dust pushing at the glass shell of Antares with triumphant mockery. The great brain had expected no reply, since for centuries it had been considered futile to combat the dust, and so when its expectation, though not its wish, was fulfilled, it relaxed and dropped, a signal that the meeting was over. But the motion had scarcely been completed when from deep within the center of the sea there came a violent heave. In a moment a section collected itself and rushed together. Like a waterspout it swished upward and went streaming toward the roof until it swayed, thin and tenuous as a column of smoke, the top of the brain peering down from the dimness of the upper hall. I have found an infallible plan. The red brain has conquered the cosmic dust. The red brain was one of the later creations of the chemists, and had come forth during the experiments to produce more perfect brains. Previously, they had all been black, but perhaps because of impurities in the chemicals, this one had evolved in an extremely dark, dull red color. No one knew how to judge the red brain, but much had been expected from it. As the red brain hung in the air, it began a slow but restless swaying, and as it swayed, its thoughts poured out in a rhythmic chant. High above them it towered, a smooth, slender column whose lofty end was moving ever faster and faster, while nervous shudders rippled up and down its length and the alien chant became stronger, stronger until it changed into a wild and dithyrambic paean to the beauty of the past, to the glory of the present, to the splendor of the future. And the lay became a moaning praise, an exaltation, a strain of furious joy ran through it, a repetition of The red brain has conquered the dust. Others have failed, but he has not. Play the national anthem in honor of the red brain, for he has triumphed. Place him at your head, for he has conquered the dust. Exalt him who has proved himself the greatest of all. Worship him who is greater than Antares, greater than the cosmic dust, greater than the universe. Abruptly it stopped. Puzzled brains looked up. The red brain had ceased its nodding motion for a moment and had closed its thoughts to them. 
but along its entire length it began a gyratory spinning until it whirled at an incredible speed. Something antagonistic suddenly emanated from it, and before the brains could grasp the situation, before they could protect themselves by closing their minds, the will impulses of the red brain, laden with hatred and death, were throbbing about them and entering their open minds. Like a whirlwind spun the red brain, hurtling forth its hate. Like half-inflated balloons, the other brains had lain around it. Like cooling glass bubbles, they tautened for a second, and like pricked balloons as their thoughts, and thus their lives, were annihilated. Since thought was life, they flattened instantaneously, dissolving into pools of evanescent slime. By tens and by hundreds they sank, destroyed by the sweeping, unchecked thoughts of the red brain which filled the hall. By groups, by sections, by paths around the whole circle fell the doomed brains in that single moment of carelessness, while pools of thick ink collected, flowed together, crept onward, and became rivers of pitch rushing down the marble floor with a soft, silken swish. The hope of the universe had lain with the red brain, and the red brain was mad. Hello, that was The Red Brain, written in 1927 by Donald Wandre, an American from Minnesota. It was his first story and was published in Weird Tales, a pulp science fiction magazine that later ran stories from H.P. Lovecraft, Fritz Leiber, who we've also covered on this program, C.L. Moore, whose short story, Chamblot, will be the subject of a forthcoming episode, and many others. With me today to prod The Red Brain are my fellow host, Mark Sinker, and our guest, Dave Queen. Mark, let me start with you. Donald Wandre, besides being from Minnesota, who was he? And what was his relationship to H.P. Lovecraft? Well, he was a fan of H.P. Lovecraft. So I, I'm not even sure that Weird Tales mightn't have published stories before this of, of Lovecraft's. And to be honest, Wandre is best known for setting up the publishing house, Arkham, I think Arkham House Publishing it was called, which, which gathered all of Lovecraft's stories and is still exists and you know it's your uh, one-stop shop for Lovecraft pretty much and I've never read any other stories by him uh, I don't necessarily think you would need to um, because this is just such a great story um, why, why, why do you think why do you think it's so great what is, what is it about it I, I think that one of the things I like about it I mean there's several things but one of the things is something that, that Martin Skidmore I guess last week was talking about which is this sense of certain stories dealing with space actually dealing with this vast kind of scope of it so that you're not just not just talking about the relationship between the earth and the moon and some little journey which you get in a tin can rocket and go up and come down but the 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 whole of the, the many galaxies and this great sort of sweep this sweep beyond gravity where the the stars are just sort of jewels in the sky, in the space up and down and all around you. And it certainly has that. It has something which, as far as I know, wasn't uh, 
I, I don't know if he invented it, but it certainly isn't something that I've been able to track down before him, which is the idea of a race of disembodied brains yeah. where their, their life uh, is thought. And as soon as the thought is snuffed out, their bodies come to pieces, which in fact, for you and I, and for most in all <laughs> life that I'm aware of, that doesn't happen. Yeah. Our thoughts might stop, but our bodies hang around. So th- that's that's an element of it. I uh, I think is you know it might be original to him. I've, in the last few days, I've been hunting hunting around for a sort of to kind of s- sketch a uh, a brief history of the giant disembodied brain. And apart from a very strange steer that that someone gave me, which suggests that Emily Dickinson <laughs> was <laughs> was a um, an early obsessive of uh, the brain and brain as a word which um was worth playing with um it seems to pretty much come up here mm-hmm. you, you find little bits of it uh, in lovecraft but in fact oddly enough the one that i found the one that most appealed to me comes after this so uh-huh. um what is that uh oh it's it's just a line in a story called uh um called the whisperer in darkness and the the line which made me laugh out loud is for the winged fungus beings to carry the brain cylinders intact through space was an easy matter, <laughs> which is uh, the best sentence ever written, although I don't think the rest of the story really comes up to that level. Well, but before we yeah. get to the, to the brains uh, on their planet in this story, it takes a long time to work around to that point. We, we spend a long time in the story. Uh, he just spends an awfully long time describing these vast, howling reaches of of space what's he doing there that's i think the thing that that i was getting at before the thing that martin was talking about it is just conjuring this scope of the hugeness of the universe once you get beyond earth and i think this is in a sense this is a lovecraftian idea that there's us there's humans but humans we're just you know we're nothing we're just little insects in this vast, inanimate, monstrous world which could just crush us. And what's hilarious about this story is that, I mean, humans don't even feature in it. This this race are the highest race that the entire universe has come up with. And they, too, are just as nothing against a foe which is not even intelligent. It's just dust. Um, Dave, what did you think about the story? What did, you, did you think the ending was... Uh, did you see it coming? I think it was a very accurate story. <laughs> Why do you say that? And I'm sure Artie Lang would have had something to say about the ending, saying that the red brain was just this rational being working in a irrational circumstances. But the, but the red brain was irrational. The red brain was, was mad. Mad, perhaps, but in a situation like that, one never knows really what the rational response to these huge clouds of cosmic dust that are annihilating everything are. So I think the brain was a little bit misunderstood. I think that perhaps the author was a bit more ambiguous in his his attitude towards the destruction of all known life in the universe more than possibly he led on in the story. Yeah, Lang's line is that in an insane world, the mad are the only sane people. Okay, okay. Yeah, I mean, it seems pretty clear that his madness has just destroyed all of his fellow uh, 
all of his fellow brains. But they were going to die anyway. That's true. What about this enemy? This pitiless dust? It's a strange sort of villain, isn't it? It's a strange sort of vi- villain unless, unless you're a, a bachelor who spends his whole time you know, in his apartment just reading science fiction. Being attacked by dust. So, you know, I think it's social realism. So, okay, so we finally reach this planet and, and we learn that this ancient and most intelligent of all uh, species has dispensed with having families and dispensed with bodies as we understand them. And now subsequent science fiction like, like Brave New World see this kind of thing as a sinister development. But you get the sense that Wandre sees this as a kind of natural and obvious evolution for an intelligent species to make. Why do you think that is? Well, this is why I thought partly why the story was ambiguous is perhaps the, the red brain was the, how would you call it, the the sort of personification of the uselessness of this sort of existence, uselessness being as to what the author might have thought of it. Like, you find a lot of this um, discussed with the human body and Lovecraft and things like that. And I can imagine, like, the only thing I really know about this story technically is it is his first story that he got published. Apparently Uh he sent it to an editor who just flipped over this and said, you got to read this. And he was, um, I think, about 19 or 20 when he wrote it. And especially if you go by any sort of stereotype of science fiction fans, there is probably going to be an element of raging hormones and sexual frustration at the time when he writes this. And what I found is there's two ways that science fiction writers go about this. They either write worlds in the future where everything's a big orgy like Robert Heinlein, or else they sort of come up with an idea where there is no physical desire anymore. They're thinking, wouldn't it be excellent to live in a world where people are not so irrational, driven by their hormones and all this sort of thing? And by having this world destroyed at the end by the red brain, I think that perhaps he's thinking that's the logical outcome of what would happen if I lived in my own... I don't know. This is what makes the story interesting. That wasn't a very good conclusion to my incomplete thought, was it? (laughs) Mark, do you want to add anything to that incomplete thought? (laughs) Well, I, yeah, I think that this is a this is a period where evolution is coming to be a, an idea um, in in lots of kinds of fiction that people are exploring the idea of where evolution will take us, and the underlying element of it is is I think tr- um, fascination, anticipation, and anxiety, and. Uh, the thing that's very funny, I think, about this story is that, that essentially evolution, which in a Darwinian sense is uh, fueled by sex drive, somehow pushes itself beyond reproduction by sex. So these brains actually reproduce by some kind of... Um, some sloughing off method or something. Well, no, I think that they develop themselves in a lab. It's some, some yeah. kind of... Um, it's a highly technical rational... Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, insofar as they're trying to find a way out beyond the place where they're stuck. It's to do with chemical experiments and and the red brain itself is a is a result of you know, an experiment perhaps gone wrong because as it says it's But gone wrong, it seems to have been also a step a step beyond the dark brains. Yes. Yeah, it, 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 he definitely makes it seem like this is a, a new thing, possibly a new step in evolution or, or something. Yeah. So evolution is bad. That's what I always thought. 
<laughs> I, I would say that. I've been living on bananas for a week. <laughs> I think, um, I, you know, one of the things that I was wondering about this is, is if there is a sort of subterranean political satire in it as well, because the red brain is, after all, a red brain, and it is, mm. it's the 20s, you know, the Bolshevik rev- revolution is, is still very much on everyone's minds. Mm. And his line is like, something terrible is happening to civilization. The highest public concourse of, you know, social discussion, which is this great committee of the rational brains, the topmost being the most highly evolved race in the entire universe. What they come up with is this one step beyond brain. And after thinking about it for millions yeah, of years. Yeah, for millions of years. And, and I think another thing which I, I actually really like about this story from the very beginning is the way it's throwing away around the words millions and billions, just like loose change, which I think is pushing you, it pushes the reader into this um, very kind of intoxicated lyrical state anyway. It, it would be easy to do that very badly, but I think this is done very um, excitingly. And yeah, and the twist is, pff, it's it's a waste of time. Well, in in the nineteen twenties, I believe that they were actually speaking in this, in the Soviet Union about the next evolution of of humans into like Homo Sovieticus or something. Like I don't know how seriously they took this, and they certainly don't speak about it much anymore. But uh, it was almost a serious thought they had that by changing civilization, um, evolution would follow. And maybe if everybody just listened to, who's that guy? Lysenko. <laughs> we would have evolved past our current troubles and conquered the universe by now. <laughs> no. sorry, sorry, so could, could you explain who this person is that you just mentioned? Oh, he was a scientist in the Stalinist era who um, came up with a lot of very unorthodox ideas, shall we say, none of which have actually proven to have done any good whatsoever but because uh-huh. he was quite adept at um, politicking within the Stalinist regime he was given sort of the pride of place of the top scientist in Stalinist Russia and some of his experiments make for quite interesting reading in a science fiction format but perhaps not so much in a scientific one mm-hmm. yeah I mean essentially he, he was he believed that evolution there was a fast track version of evolution so that anything that one generation learns can be straight away passed on to the next generation which is not how evolution darwinian evolution works but this was very exciting this is very exciting for any society which believes it is at the next step because then it it's can establish itself as being firmly at the next step it doesn't have to worry about actually creating something lasting because it it happens just by dint of the fact that everyone already agrees on it that's what sort of struck me in this particular story is how they stress that the reason the brains are are more advanced than the rest of the galaxy is that they took longer to evolve yeah and perhaps this is why the red brain experiment went so horribly wrong is because they we're too impatient to beat this dust. They said, let's build something now, this super solution to everything with their impure chemicals. A 
Dave Queen, I'd like to think uh, of you as a as something of a rock and roll synesthete. Syn- synesthesia is the, the syndrome when you s- uh, sing a certain when tone. When I chew colors, or, like this giant, you know, red licorice microphone here. <laughs> right, like like the color red will equal a certain tone. I think to you, Dave, anything you see or hear equals certain rock songs. The first thing I thought of was the Ramones. That was my first impression. Um, so this story equals. The, the Ramones. It does to me because they were one of the first bands who started singing about brains as opposed to minds. Like you'd hear – I think they were sort of like a frustrated prog band in the way like they thought, well, before we have – before we tackle the mysteries of the mind, we have to start singing about brains, which includes songs about shock therapy and lobotomies and just general bad brains and things like that. And that was quite an interesting sort of – leap they made saying the physical condition of the brain is it can be affected by glue or television or whatever but that's what this story made me think of one of the ways it feels quite modern is that it it has a kind of biomaterialism to it what i mean by that is it starts off with this huge kind of imaginative scope of the whole of the galaxy which is something we can imagine but we don't actually have any um, physical or material relation to it. We've seen pictures of it and we have a sort of drifty kind of sense of the vastness of space because we can remember the beginning of Star Trek, but not because we've actually been there or, or encountered it. But it actually it gets down more and more, it gets more and more claustrophobic and it comes down to this, this these two quite physical things that I think we do have a material relationship to, one of which is the encroaching dust. And the other is this kind of slimy, gooey stuff just like sliding across the floor. And slimy, gooey stuff is what we are made of. Mm-hmm. And the, the idea that, that bodies are, you know, just kind of slimy, gooey stuff is a bit of a punk rock idea. Uh-huh. I think it was, I mean, when Dave said this, I thought it was a really an interest because I'd associated this and I think I associate science fiction without really thinking about it, with much more of a sort of proggy 
kind of prop. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting that you say punk because I, there's something about this story, the, 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 the vastiness of the space, the purpleness of the prose in places <laughs> that really makes you think of – you know, um, you know, Tarkus, you know, or or, or 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 something, or you know, giant, vast rock, prog, prog rock epics. I think what what maybe is this story actually encompasses is the step from these big, rather airy ideas to actually kind of turning the thing on its head and saying, no, in the end, what we're about and what it's about is bodies and how bodies fail. It's not about you know, there's no the stars by themselves without anything actually on the planets. Who cares? And in these brains are so advanced that they actually say existence. Is of no benefit to anyone. I, yeah, no, I've been hunting around for for other images dealing with this the image of the brain as something that you can um that is externalized and that you that you something you would like to you know, examine and feel around it. And and I, I thought there would be lots of, you know, rock LP covers and things like this, but this I think that uh, Rush's Hemispheres is the first the first actual image where there's two two gentlemen, one with no clothes on and one wearing a sort of um Mr suit type commuter suit standing on a brain. And, and do any of their do any of the songs on this album have anything to actually do with with or is this just a a sensationalist cover that they put on here? The first half of the album is taken up by a seventeen minute long epic called Cygnus X One Book Two: Colon Hemispheres, and what he's done is he's made this. The, the song's plot involves an astronaut who flies through a wormhole, as is described on the previous album, Cygnus X1, Book 1. <laughs> book 2, he arrives in an alien civilization which is constantly at war between the forces of reason and the forces of emotion. The, uh, this is summed up in the album lyrics as Apollo and Dionysus, and which is oh, well, so you just going b- binary crazy here, right? Full on the left and right sides of the brain are the metaphor, and not only that, but on the side two of the album, which gives it layers of subtlety, which most critics have failed to discern until now, <laughs> is that one of the songs is actually in French, which I believe is some sort of comment on the schizophrenic nature of their home country, which apparently is two official languages. Yeah. So if you think of two halves of the brain trying to speak two official languages, um, I believe that the album's concept is that, well, all these dualities will create confusion and sell us lots of t-shirts the people most rush fans will bring this album home and say what is this thing on the cover that looks like a dried prune mark you said a little bit last week about the pleasures of bad writing uh, as far as science fiction goes could you say something a little bit about that well i mean i think it is something it's something i've always been interested in which is the the chilling effect of the well-made of well-made art which is that if something is too well done, whether it's a story or whether it's music, that I think it puts the the audience in the position really just of sitting back and appreciating it, feeling kind of blessed to be in the presence of something so mu- so marvellous, which in itself is not necessarily a bad feeling, but I, I think it's a bad thing that it's the only feeling that you get. 
and I think that there's various, you know, streams of endeavour. Mm-hmm. Um, prog rock, science, pulp science fiction, punk, in fact, early punk, where the obsession with well-made goes really screwy. And what goes screwy about it is that, that people are driving towards something, getting something done, but what the rules actually are for doing that are being invented as it's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and if this has been established for some time, then there come to be kind of conventions and agreed on ways of doing it and shortcuts to it. And then people judge it by how it compares to something that was done earlier. But something like this, I mean, who is there to compare it to? It may be Edgar Allan Poe, obviously some earlier Lovecraft stories. But it, it, I, although I think it resembles Lovecraft in some ways, in other ways I think it really doesn't. No, in, 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 why, why do you say that? Well, I think this sort of sense of space and scope. And, and Lovecraft is pretty much always, they're always humans in a Lovecraft story, even if they always come to a bad end. Yeah. Essentially, Lovecraft dynamic is there's people and then there's the Elder Gods and the Elder Gods stomp on the people. And, and that's pretty much the same st- He just finds 100,000 slightly different ways of telling that story. And he is over-pleased with himself for, for um, the remarkableness of this one story. Well, Andre just dispenses with people altogether and he goes with the Elder Gods and they get stomped. But they get stomped just by the uselessness of everything. And I, and I think it's, you know, compared to... I find Lovecraft quite hard going in more than tiny bursts. I think he writes great sentences and terrible paragraphs. Mm. And I think this is, is incredibly readable. You read from the beginning to the end. It, you don't... So it's not hard going in that sort of sense. So in that sense, it's, it's good writing. Yes. And it gets exactly the effect it wants. And, yeah. you know, when we were first talking about doing this, um, we were thinking, well, you know, what can we say? And initially, that was definitely my response too. But actually, I think there's an awful lot of things in it which are packed into it, which are just sort of packed in almost as, you know, they're part of the structure of it. But So it's a story about entropy. It's um, a story about the political problematic of telepathy. <laughs> okay, can you expand on, on, on <laughs> well, that a little bit? The, the fact that social discourse and political conversation in among you know, mammals like ourselves requires that we negotiate the fact that, that we communicate by language and that that is... Um, a uh, a collective agreement with all sorts of fuzziness in it and it's time based and what's what happens with this um with telepathy as he's saying is that that it's instantaneous and it's a sort of total communication so that if someone decides instead of communicating aha here is my plan point a point b you guys go and do this if instead he decides to communicate total annihilating hate then he kills everyone by just communicating with them so the act and the the word and the deed are with telepathy are exactly mapped on top of each other whereas with language they're not there's nothing i can say in this microphone which can do more than annoy either of you
I think there is uh, there are similarities between the twenties and the seventies in some respects. In that, I think there is a, a sort of emergent popular culture which is uh, wary of or suspicious of the claims of rational public discourse for mm-hmm. the for fairly straightforward reasons. Which is, you know, it's either the seventies is actually wartime, and the twenties was just after the first just, world just, war, just Catast- after the most catastrophic yeah. war, which was unlike anything that had been before. And I think that what you have is a lot of people who are in revolt against the um, the idea that the wise and the good are the people who've read books and know how to write them, and that they will come together, they will gather in large public spaces and discuss things and run them in a way where things work out. So working up to the 70s, you had you had the sort of the, the technocrats who had won World War II. They, they were planning the, this post-war uh, industrial consumer durable utopia. And um, once, yeah, once the 70s begins, then... Well, it's not going so great. It's not going so great in lots of ways. It's not going so great, you know, because there's war instead of peace and because... There's kids being brought up with electric, electric th- shock therapy that you know, or your younger brother or your sister or your dad or whatever. Your dad's an alcoholic. Your brother's sniffing glue. It's not really such a marvelous place, and you may not have the fine words or the subtle rational politics to explain and resist this what you have to hand is this music that that is somehow evolving isn't even the right word for it it's sort of crawling and tumbling towards some new kind of sound which is which is against the technocratic war machine somehow and and i think that wandre's story in a different sense is 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 making a similar kind of um, nihilistic argument. It's, it's very ahead of its time in one way, in that he's saying this total annihilating hate could possibly have come from a chemical impurity in the brain's creation. And that's been one of the controversies over this controversy, sorry, over this century, <laughs> over whether or not total annihilating hate comes from some terrible thing that happened when you were seven or whether it comes from a mm-hmm. lack of serotonin or yeah, whether it can be just a, a chemical uh, right. imbalance. And the author sort of hedges onto the side of the ladder, but he does leave it open. And perhaps you think what sort of trauma could this brain have had in the vat where it was being grown like, did somebody knock it over one day? or I don't know. It makes me... I think a case history on what drove the brain to this act of poetic poetic apocalypse, so to speak. Well, they, they, he speaks of the brain, the red brain, as if it's a child, in a way. He says that great things were expected of it. But and the, it yeah, it behaves. It behaves like quite a small child, doesn't it? Because it kind of dances, and it's very kind of look at me. And of course, because the task it has been given is to basically clean its room up. There's too much dust, <laughs> and it's given this task, and it reacts just the way a child would. I, I think Wandry's idea of of um, 
lab chemistry is also quite teenage, actually, which is essentially, you know, when the teacher went out, what you did was poured chemicals where you had no idea what they were into other chemicals where you had no idea what they were. And for you, that was an experiment. He was trying, the teacher was carefully trying to teach you what actual science did for experiments, which is where you know what this is and you know what that is and you're trying to find it. But, but for a school kid, experiment is make, make a big bang or make a horrible smell. And, and I think that that is what he imagines or enjoys imagining the people in the lab doing to make the better brains it's like well put you know put some of that in brain one thousand one million one and thirty three put some of that in and see what happens wow it makes a horrible smell but it's not really this one then try this oh this one made a red brain this oh, one made see. a red yeah let's put that on one side great things might be expected of that really till the 50s i don't think that you don't you get a real obsessive fascination with the sort of texture and the look of the brain as an object you start getting aliens whose intelligence is such or is so warped that apparently their brains have somehow grown outside their skulls and and then you suddenly once this idea i think the first the first appearance of it is in this island earth the Metalunans. Um, there were two kinds of alien races. There's the ones whose brains have extruded beyond their skulls. But the other one, which is considered even more threatening, are just flying disembodied brains or crawling disembodied brains. So they're kind of half slugs and half parasitic something or other. And um, there's a film called The Tingler, where these sort of parasitic brains jump onto the backs of human necks and 
and then control them. And they, and they do basically look like snails, a cross between brains and snails when they're crawling, and then they kind of jump. And then you become, you, the person they've jumped onto becomes your slave. And I don't think, I think there's, I, I can't remember if there's any 50s movies which actually have flying brains. But uh, that, I, I think that image might just be, you have to wait for future armor for that that to be uh there's a future armor story about the end of the universe in fact which has um a race of flying brains um which is is like a future armor version of the red brain well future armor has has all those heads and jars too doesn't it oh yeah yeah yes yeah so i i think that this there's the fascination with life after death and the brain li- living on but then somehow the sense that the brain without the body is an organ out of control. So it becomes something which is too... too it becomes something even more monstrous. It, it isn't better for just being a brain on its own. It's somehow worse, untrammeled in some horrible way. Now that I think about it, there is one band who have done several songs about being a disembodied brain, but angry with it and that was metallica um on well on on their second album ride the lightning they had a song called trapped under ice which was just a typical adolescent problem about nobody ever hearing anything me about i say whatever but it was expressed in those sort of terms but they had a very big hit several years later with a track called one which was based on a book i think or a film and it was narrated from the point of view of somebody who had stepped on a landmine, uh, reg- making their entire body useless and unable to perceive any senses except pure consciousness. And it was, it was, I think it was based on Johnny Get Your Gun by Johnny. Uh, yeah, Johnny Dalton, got his gun. Dalton, Dalton Trumbo. That's yeah. right. Yes, they were they were enormously popular. I imagine with uh, a certain audience who felt the way they did that life was just very very frustrating because they were unable to make any contact with anybody um you can almost imagine the entire planet as a brain with no body there's there's nothing out there it's just blackness i i think one way of looking at it is that the 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 rational concourse of these conclave of these brains is the intelligence of the entire universe but it's kind of just shutting down as as entropy is encroaching on it. Thank you, Dave Queen and Mark Sinker. Next week, we'll be discussing The Sound of Thunder with Al Ewing. Thanks very much for listening.